Welcome to episode 292 of F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, we welcome back a fan favorite photographer who self-identifies himself as a creative, Scottish photographer Alistair Ben. Alistair first joined us all the way back on episode 126 in 2019. A lot has changed in the world and in Alistair's life since then, so it was wonderful to sit down and catch up with him. Alistair was a judge in our inaugural year of the Natural Landscape Photography Awards, or as you'll hear him reference it as NLPA, and he teaches students from all over the world his style of creating photographs, which he simply labels as expressive photography. We unpack a lot of delicate subjects this week, so buckle up and enjoy the ride. Before we start, I wanted to encourage listeners once again to join me over on Nature Photographers Network or NPN, to improve your photography. NPN is a feature-rich community run by two of my favorite photographers, Jennifer Renwick and David Kingham. I promise that by joining the site, you will improve your work. There is an incredible critique forum where you can get awesome advice from some of the biggest names in the business on how to make your photographs better. It's simple as that. For just $49 per year, you can join the community over on NPN and gain access to the site and all that it has to offer, which is a lot. It's such a great place, and we'd love to see you there. Just head over to npn.link forward slash fstop to join. Use the code fstop10 for a 10% discount. Okay, let's get to this week's episode with Alistair Ben. All right, Alistair Ben, it is so cool to have you back on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. A real pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, look at us. We're like two bearded, uh, bald Scotsmen. Well, yeah, one and a half. <laughs> right. No, I mean, so it's interesting. My genealogy is actually like probably 20, 30% Scottish. So it's in there somewhere. All right. One and one and one and a third. Right. <laughs> Math checks. Well, so, you know. <laughs> First of all, let me just say uh, it was such an honor to have you to be part of the first year of Natural Landscape Photography Awards as a judge. It was such a fun project to kick off the ground, and we couldn't have had a better panel of amazing judges, and it was awesome to have you a part of that. That was a real honor. Uh, so yeah, thank you very much for that. It was a genuine honor to be part of that. And obviously, I know Tim really well because we live, we're neighbors, we're like half an hour apart. But the whole principle of what it represented, I thought was very important at this point in time. And it was just the quality of work was staggering, uh, really. It was an incredibly difficult process to, to actually go through so many amazing images. It made me want to quit, actually. <laughs> I know, we, uh, we just finished pre-judging for year two and uh having it cold down to like the top 30 40 percent of images is like wow there's so much talent out there like you said it's like i'm just there gonna is. throw my camera in the trash well that's something we might be able to come on to a little later <laughs> yeah right 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 let's just get the trash cans ready no it's funny 
<laughs> well, so for, for like the seven people on earth who aren't familiar with you and your photography, why don't you go ahead and uh, introduce yourself and tell us what you're all about? Sure. Uh, well, I'm Alistair Ben. I'm Scottish. Uh, I'm a full-time landscape photographer, writer, artist, educator, inter, all of that stuff that we do these days. I run expressive photography with my wife, Anne-Christine, uh, who's from Norway. Uh, we live on the west coast of Scotland in a kind of a very small village surrounded by wet woods and midges and occasional tourists. And <laughs> yeah, kind of a curious thing that that I've got to the point where I struggle to call myself a landscape photographer it's I'm much more focused these days, I think, on being I've always found the word artist somewhat awkward feels. I, I think from being a young kid, maybe the word artist still feels maybe a tiny little bit pretentious to say, oh, I'm an artist, yes. it's somewhat overused yeah. maybe these days. But I would say that I want or I aspire to be a creative person. And whether if I don't have a camera in my hand, it doesn't mean I'm not creating or I'm not creative. So I'm very focused on the benefits and power of creativity for my own mental health and for the mental health of other people who I know. I can pick up a guitar or even running. I can go for a run and have a creative run. So I think the word landscape photographer, I'm kind of veering away from, oddly. I, I think that's actually smart. Uh, when you said the word artist is a little bit <laughs> pretentious or whatever, I, it resonated with me because... I remember the first time someone, I was like, back in like 2011, I was showing one of my coworkers a photograph I took and like in hindsight it was terrible, but, and she was like, you're such a good artist. And I was like, whoa, whoa. like, let's not use that word. Like, I don't know what it is yeah. about us photographers, but we, some of us, it seems like, or many of us that I've spoken with have a very, have some reservations about using that word. <laughs> well, the thing about it is it's just another label at the end of the day and i think the problem with labels is it tends to polarize it's like mm -hmm. republican or democrat or christian or muslim right. or black or white the, these labels are somewhat divisive you know, we talk about music mm -hmm. as i'm a rapper or i'm a prog rocker you know it, it, by their very definition they're divisive words and mm. i don't believe art should be divisive i think it's the antithesis of what art should be it should be bringing back together people's human values and understanding it doesn't matter if you're black, white, Muslim, Christian, uh, religious or not religious, it doesn't make a blind bit of difference. We have human values that we need to express and rationalize. And that's what life is about, is getting through it with some degree of sanity as a bonus. So I think I'm kind of trying to pull away from divisive language that's polarizing. And I think that is a pitfall that all of us kind of fall into from time to time is using a label that says oh I'm better than you because or I'm even rich and poor all of these things are there there is too much of that I think so that's why yeah, I'm sort of yeah I was just gonna say like uh the words themselves aren't divisive it's actually us as humans and the way that we're wired evolutionarily speaking in terms of using mental shortcuts or heuristics to kind of quickly assess like groups. And you know, if you think back to the early days of civilization, when we were just coming out of being hunters and gatherers, and there's these small bands of people in a lot of tribalism, and it's like you needed quick ways to identify threats to your existence. Right. And that's why we've thrived so much as a species is because we're very good at applying these labels quickly 
right. and they just don't serve us that well now. It changed an awful lot in this last 10,000 years. And, but right. I think essentially the root of who we are as people hasn't changed that much, but the cognitive function has changed a huge amount. And yeah. the language that we have available to us now is far greater. And, and right. people love to label. <laughs> they, they really oh, absolutely. love it. And so, yeah, our, our, I, I do very much struggle to, to, to give myself a definition. So I think Alistair Benn, creative person, is probably about as much as I'm prepared to pin myself to at the moment. Well, it's certainly much more malleable. I mean, when you when you say the word landscape photographer or nature photographer, that certainly evokes for me certain aesthetics and certain styles and you know, like some <clears throat> cognitive attachments to what the nature and the landscape represents through a camera. When you start to deviate from that and say, I'm just a lens-based artist or I'm just a creative person, like those kind of preconceived ideas are kind of gone with the wind and it kind of frees you as a person to be able to say my work is just some creative stuff that I'm doing and sometimes it might look like landscape photography or nature photography but yeah I think that's actually a, a really smart way to go to be honest. I think we end up in a situation these days as well is that as, as the marketplace becomes more saturated for photographers that you're a professional or an amateur or a semi-professional or just a hobbyist as the marketplace becomes even more saturated there are more photographers now than there have ever been photographers on this planet and i think the terms become too general for the different type of work that people do. So Tal is in a very different genre from other people or Guy Tal is just Guy Tal and honestly he could walk down a he could photograph anything and he would still be photographing Gaital. You know, it doesn't have to be a landscape, it could be anything. He could get into bird photography or snake photography or he'd still be photographing himself in a way. Yeah. And that's very much how I see myself is that every photograph I take is somehow autobiographical and mm. therefore the landscape isn't the subject per se, it's just this canvas on which to project me trying to rationalize thoughts and fears and anxieties or hope or aspirations or pain and struggling or war or famine and all of these things that are going on in the world right now. We use the landscape to, as a canvas to take us out of ourselves and that allows us to be, to gain a perspective that I think is hard to do if you're just photographing a subject. If it's just, I'm photographing that mountain, then it's like the subject is the mountain, but it's not representing anything from within you other than your appreciation of it. Uh, so I think that's the difference between different types of photographers, really, I think. But I'm enjoying yeah. uh, a break, actually, oddly, at the moment. I haven't made a photograph in four months and it's oddly refreshing. It, it's my relationship with aesthetics and the relationship of why I want to pick up my camera is evolving and changing. But uh, I think I sent out a newsletter yesterday and I feel the, the first stirrings coming of, yeah, I'm ready. It's just that, like you look in the guitar there and it's just, yeah, I'm ready to pick you up and we're gonna, we're gonna rock. <laughs> you get that kind of feeling that it's, you're just ready yeah. to do something and it's exciting. So I like that. Yeah, and it's, it's, I find that at least myself and some other people I've spoken to that oftentimes it's hard to articulate in words kind of that, <clears throat> that connectivity between the photographic subject and your personal desire to express something or lack thereof. Like 
I've had conversations with people where it's like, I just want to showcase the beauty that I've discovered in a way that I remember it. And I think there is something expressive to that, but it's a lot less, it's a lot harder to kind of put into those types of words, I guess. One of the questions I get an awful lot is what is expressive photography uh, as if it's somehow an elitist thing. Right. That, oh, my photography is not, do my photography's not ex- Yeah, how can I do expressive photography? And my, my argument has always been that all photography is expressive. All art is expressive. You make a statement, whether it's music or words or pictures or a painting or a sculpture, all of it is expressive of human values. And taking a photographer like Mark Adamus as an example, Mark's work is an expression of his love for the landscape and the wilderness that he enjoys spending his time in. It's just squared. It's just this <laughs> magnification of his entire... But at the same time, as you, you know, when you know Mark really well, it's just a representation of him. He's got so much energy and so much exuberance for the landscape and his passion and environment. So... But it's very representative of the place at the same time. There's other photographs of like blurred reflections in water or subsurface rocks or something like that. They're less about the subject and the more about the emotion represented with it. And all photography mm-hmm. is expressing something. It, and I think I kind of subdivide it into two categories. The photograph is either the landscape telling you something about itself and the place that you're in, or you projecting onto the landscape something that you're feeling and want to express and it's that that's that to my mind is the kind of the scale two sides of the scale that you can either make images that are a representative of a place and the awe that you have for that place and the experience that you had or you're using the landscape as a canvas on which to express other things about yourself and that's great and all of it is expressive yeah i feel like for me anyway, the sweet spot is where both are happening at the same time, which is if you had a Venn diagram of those two things, like it's probably not that common. <laughs> uh, well, every photograph that you make has a degree of stuff that it wants to say itself versus the things that you see in it. And I think one of right. the great things about my approach is that we can learn things from the photographs that we make. And I guess, therefore, the Venn diagram is perfect. If you're prepared to listen to the content and learn from it, rather than just like forcing your will on it and turning it into something that's just like impact uh, or whatever purpose that may want to, to achieve, then I believe we can learn from aesthetics. I can, I believe we can learn from the photographs we make intuitively because it's telling us something about why we did that in the first place. I'd, but at the end of the day, I think anybody out there with a camera in the landscape, pointing their camera at stuff and feeling good about that process is in a win situation. And that to me is more important than talking about good photography or bad photography or meaningful photography or trite photography or whatever. If you're out there with a the camera and you're having a good time, great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I recently uh, recorded with uh, Gaital and Alex Noriega, and we had a conversation about some of these things. And this idea of intuition and uh, kind of listening to what the images are saying back to you has come up numerous times, especially in that conversation and others. And and I'm curious, you talked a little bit about your approach, and I would love for you to talk a little bit more about what that actually looks like in practice in terms of 
harnessing that intuition and kind of being more receptive to uh, what you're finding in your photographs? Obviously thought a lot about this over the years. I, just for a bit of background for people who don't know who I am, picked up a camera again in 2002. And I had a camera when I was younger, but I hadn't, you know, you know you're running around like an idiot pointing at stuff that doesn't make any sense. And ironically, that's what I do now. But I went through a middle ground where <laughs> I tried to study and learn and read lots of books and got lots of feedback from my peers and so forth. And I think by the end of 2016, I'd got to the point where I was very competent at going anywhere and finding photographs mm -hmm. uh, from a very classical approach of mid-ground foreground, or sorry, foreground, mid-ground, background, being there at a good time of day, understanding the impact of tides and all of these things and weather and looking right. at weather charts and increasing the possibility of having optimal or somewhat optimal conditions, whatever that means. And, uh, mm -hmm. but I did feel uh, there was a bit of a question mark as to why I was doing it. I was running a business by then. I'd already started my first photography business. I'd quit my mainstream job. I was building a workshop business. And most of my photographs were used to advertise workshops. It was their utility. That was their purpose. The purpose was just out in the landscape anyway. So I was making photographs. And then everything changed. Fairly well known that I, I did suffer an, a huge amount of depression and anxiety in my life. And from a very early age, from about 18, 19, and was truly pretty miserable most of the time. And what changed was in January 2017 when I went into the Gobi Desert and suddenly found myself in an alien landscape. And this is the answer to your question, was what does it look like, my process? And what I realized was that without pointy things that were jutting up into the sky in beautiful light, there was this very flat landscape with like undulations in it because it was all sand and, and sand dunes. And for a couple of minutes every day, there was directional light, maybe, or it was just flat gray skies. And I really freaked out. It was about a very panic-inducing experience because it was like, I don't know how to photograph this place and I'm not enjoying it. And I'm 200 miles from the nearest road and we're with this guy who I don't know and we're going <laughs> to run out of petrol and water and food. And it was minus 26 Celsius and we were camping and just generally a really unpleasant right. experience. What am I thinking? <laughs> why did I do this? Right. But at that point in time, it was better than where I'd been. So what I decided to do was just, just surrender. I thought, right, I'm just going to surrender. So I just thought I'm going to let the landscape tell me where to point my camera. So whatever that may be, I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to try and intellectualize it. I'm not going to try and work out why I'm drawn to that. I'm just gonna see, respond, point my camera at it and do it. And most of the shots I made were handheld. So I would see something, point my camera at it and it was just like, cool. And what I found was on a daily basis that different things would talk to me. Some days it would be curvy lines, sinuous lines, soft things. Other days it would be very angular things, very aggressive things very tense things. And really I had this great epiphany where all of a sudden I understood the voice of the landscape, what the landscape was saying, what the landscape was asking me to point my camera at. And there was two variables. There was the landscape's changing face and its qualities. And there was my changing face of waking up one day feeling quite sad and melancholic versus other days feeling more hopeful and open and energized. And I, was, I started to find a connection between the things that were asking me to point my camera versus 
the mood I was in or the feelings I was having. So when I got back from that trip, I instantly was running workshops. I was in Iceland and then I was doing a speaking engagement in Florida. And then we were away with all sorts of other workshops. And I started to project that practice of listening to the landscape and just allowing my intuition to drive, allowing my subconscious to drive. And what I found was that if you're someone who's used your intellect for most of your life, either professionally or linguistically or conversationally, the, we rely on our intellect a lot. It gets us out of a lot of bother a lot of the time. And obviously when you're in, in international finance, you're sitting, talking deep things with smart people most of the time. So being articulate linguistically and intelligently was a thing to do. So of course you're going to use those skills in your photography. So what really happened was that giving your intellect a break instantly opens up this other side of you this very intuitive, this very free and unintellectual uh, side of you that's just very, it just felt very real. Uh, and what it does is it takes that whole intellectualization out, out of the process. But what that does rely upon is having a certain amount of craft, knowing that you can run the camera on autopilot, knowing that you're always going to be using the aperture that's appropriate or the shutter speed or the ISO understanding focus, image stabilization, all of these things that you just do without having to think about it. So by doing that, I was totally free to just make photographs without too much thought. It was, I used to call it mindlessness in, in the landscape <laughs> as opposed to mindfulness. I developed mindlessness. And what really struck me was that photographs I made suddenly were mine. I actually felt like my photographs as opposed mm -hmm. to going to a place with a recognizable feature that was somehow the draw, the reason to be there. So it just meant I can go anywhere. I mean, I can walk into the woods behind home and just find really cool things to point my camera at that speak to me right. in that moment. But I could walk past it 50 times over the next month and just ignore it. But in that moment, the way the light's hitting it, the time of day, you know, the way I'm feeling, it resonates and that's it. That's the time to make that photograph. And that is my process now, really. Yeah, that's brilliant. I've been <clears throat> trying to incorporate more of that style into my own work. And I can always tell the difference between when I'm in that frame of mind and when I'm not in terms of what I produce. And I'm curious for people who don't have like 30 days to spend in the Gobi Desert stranded and forced to take on this kind of approach. What advice would you have for someone who like wants to engage in that way, but might not? You know, maybe they're very thinking type person like I am. Maybe there's somebody who's always planned every single photographic shoot that they go out on. Like how can someone kind of break away from that pattern of engaging with the landscape and try this on? That's a wonderful question. And it's reality is that it's harder than it may sound to do that. I do strongly believe that the contemporary photographic scene rewards a certain style of photography. And this is part of the reason why you started the NLPA was to basically provide a competition platform for people who want to play by different rules, who want to make photographs in a different way. And a lot of these photographs don't particularly do well in the social media context. And mm -hmm. the type of photographs that I advocate, many of them aren't that popular because they're very personal. It's there's a great amount of therapy in the process and there's a great amount of therapy in producing aesthetics that mean something to you. 
And if they don't mean something to somebody else, it's very easy for that thought process to become negative. In other words, it's going back to this tribalism that we talked about at the beginning. 10, 15,000 years ago, being an outsider meant you were going to die. Was it? You know, right. You... <laughs> it's real. There's, there's real <clears throat> consequence. <laughs> there is a real consequence for being on the outside of things. And that, I think, is a very primitive need in us, is to feel as if we are somehow accepted by our peers. And to get yourself into that mindset you have to really get to the root of the question, why are you making photographs in the first place? If you're making photographs to be popular or to be recognized as a good photographer, quote marks for those of you who are not watching this in video, <laughs> I'm making the quote marks fingers. If, you're, if the photographs that you're making are to garner some degree of external validation or acceptance within the broader community, then making images for yourself that are deep, deeply introspective aren't necessarily going to get you that. So I work with uh, my own private community. I have an expressive photographers forum and the group of people on there make photographs for themselves and then explain what it is that they're doing and everybody else totally gets it. So it's a really cool, happy place for people to hang out. I also work with mentees and some of the exercises I get people to do, because I meet plenty of people who are super analytical, super intelligent, really uh, rational and less, they're not so much driven by emotion and imagination, they're more driven by uh, technique and equipment and things like that. So getting someone out of that vein. And two of the most successful things I've found to work are when you make a photo, well, there's two things you can do. One is you can go into the landscape and not make photographs at all. You can just go into the landscape and every time you notice something, write it down. So it might be starfish in a rock pool or interesting cloud or uh, the way that mountain is catching the light or birds singing, whatever it might be. So you can note down stuff you can, like subject driven note of notes, but then you can also write down emotions that you feel when you see some of this stuff. So if you see the sun coming from behind a cloud and creating a great big God beam that blasts down over the landscape and highlights a single tree, yellow tree on a mountainside, you might write down hope or ritual or uplifting or energizing. All of these words are synonymous with the event. Yeah. And as soon as you marry those words with an event that you're witnessing, you're rewiring your brain. You're literally rewiring your brain. You're creating connections that did not exist before because you're associating something that you feel with something that you see. And that is the path. But the, that is a really excellent exercise. The second thing to do is to go into the landscape and throw your lens completely out of focus and walk through the landscape with things out of focus and then just with a shallow aperture pulling certain things into focus and other things are out of focus because what that does is it turns the world around you into a fantasy land a complete fairy tale and once you have the images back on the computer once you make an image that you like write an essay about it sit down and just tell the story what this means to you what it's representing how it makes you feel the emotions that you feel the mood that you feel anything write a story to yourself and again you're rewiring your brain during that process because you're associating words and imagery with aesthetics all of those things are going to expand your mind and the irony is that in the contemporary photography scene it's those types of photographs with that type of commentary 
that people are starting to resonate with. There are professional photographers now who are, who are recognised for that type of work. And I think that's a great thing. And I think NLPA is going some way to address that as well. So the good thing about photography is it's constantly changing. Society is constantly changing. And we are we're part of the wave. We are part of that front wave of change and i've always been a firm believer in embracing change i think it's how we evolve just talking to guy tal about this and he said photography has become quite stagnant but i think to your point i mean photography is incredibly young i mean it's you know it's less than 200 years old really ish something like that i mean it's in terms of an art form it's just now starting to get it's it's a toddler so i think it's actually encouraging for me to see how much it's transformed even in the last 15, 20 years. So I think it's oh, exciting. Totally. Yeah, I well, do too. Because the bottom line with that, and sorry, sorry to interrupt you, is the bottom line is that if there are humans involved who are trying to push the envelope, then of course it's going to change and grow. You know, so it's only, I mean, pretty much my modus operandi these days with expressive photography is not the status quo. <laughs> that That's pretty much my 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 whole business model is not to do the same as everybody else. I think the tagline for EP now is like where the not normal is normal or something, <laughs> that type of vibe. Yeah. And so, I mean, a large part of what you were just talking about is kind of letting go of what's become popular and what things people are doing to just kind of appease the masses or whatever. And really speaking to authenticity and being true to yourself as an artist and things of that nature. And I think it's a fairly good segue to talk about some of the challenges that we face when we want to embrace that authenticity while facing the the realistic demands of putting food on the table and being able to pay our rent and things like that as photographers and artists, especially when you're full time. And so with that being said, I'd love for you to uh, talk a little bit about the challenges that you face being a full time artist and how much pressure that's put on your business. Right. I mean... One of the things I've always tried to do is to be positive. There's nothing worse than being stuck in a room with a negative person. It, it pretty <laughs> is the worst thing you can possibly imagine. And I think one of the things I remember the moment, I mean, I had a successful career. I mean, I, I made like, good money, <laughs> proper good money. I could take six months of the year off. I don't have any of it anymore, but I did make good money. And this is back in the sort of 2000s or whatever. I remember the decision I made when I decided, right, that's it. I want to go full-time professional photographer. The question I asked myself was, will you make a difference? What are you going to add to photography? And if the answer had been nothing, I wouldn't have done it. It's like my own personal need was I wanted to give something to either the art form or society. That that was my main drive. Now, the, the reality of that is that if you rely 100% on photography for your income, you are living in a constantly changing and very dynamically volatile business environment. In the 20 odd years since I got back into photography, and I think I, think I made the decision to go pro in 2007 or eight, and I kind of morphed a little bit. So it was about 2010, 10, I think I really, 2009, I just thought, right, that's it. It's photography. What's happened since I have been involved in it 
is pretty much every traditional manner that we used to make money as photographers or people had made money as photographers has changed. When I was first involved, people were making six figures a year on stock photography. People were selling six figures a year worth of prints. People were selling six figures a year worth of uh, workshops. And what's happened since I've been involved in it is social media has happened. And the number of photographers has exponentially increased. And by exponentially, I mean that literally. We are on an, a rapidly ascending slope of more photographers. And to be honest with you, the thing that's probably changed the most is the number of amateur photographers who are making some money out of photography. It used to be a career for professionals. Uh, because film was expensive, learning film photography was hard, time-consuming, uh, and took there time. There were just more barriers to entry. Yeah, more barriers to entry. And once you had your foot under the table with a magazine or a stock agency, you were there. You were their guy, and they would come to you for the penguin photos or whatever. Whereas now, right. magazines don't pay for images anymore. Stock is worthless. Uh, people don't buy as many prints as they used to because they make the road. So the whole market has changed. So there are real and genuine pressures to continue evolving your business. And what I've found is that I, I've fluctuated between online and face-to-face -face modeling for pretty much the entire time I've been involved. It started pretty much as an online business model, selling eBooks and videos. Then it became a mostly face-to-face -face running workshops thing. And then, of course, COVID hits and it became 100% online again. Uh, I think I lost $200,000 worth of gross income when COVID hit. I had 18 months of sold out workshops in the diary, which would have grossed maybe $200,000. Not net, of course, but, you know, sure. still a chunk of change. So that just disappeared overnight. So instantly you're in this situation where how do we replace this income? Because... A, I'm 55 years old and I'm not going to go and get another job. I can't go back into my previous career because I'm no longer qualified. I could drive trucks, I guess, or work, work in a pizza place, or, but I live in the middle of nowhere. There is no pizza place. So the alternatives I have for making an alternative income are nil. So I have to make an income from landscape photography or my education photography. So we, did, we started with the mentoring and we started with uh, the YouTube channel started writing more ebooks and making more videos and doing all sorts of online things like talks and presentations and even getting paid for doing the NLPA was very helpful. <laughs> so that, that was good too. And then of course, last year, the NFT craze kicked in and some of my peers were suddenly making hundreds of thousands of dollars selling photographs again or making money from their photographs again. And of course, you look at these things from the outside and you just think, this is amazing. This is a dream come true. This is the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is suddenly realizing, well, wait a minute, I can make money from my photographs. I've got hard drives full of them. And right. uh, <laughs> I, I've always considered myself to be a thoughtful and considered person, but at the same time, I can be incredibly impulsive and spontaneous. And you always sometimes make decisions that, in hindsight, maybe weren't the best decision to make, but life doesn't come with a manual telling you uh, how to make every right decision. Every it's what being an adult is making a decision and then either bearing the consequences of that decision and living up to the consequences of that decision. So I, I did get somewhat involved with it last year, only through Twitter. I didn't 
start making YouTube videos about it or sending out newsletters to my existing people, but I did get involved in it to some extent. And I kind of regret it, to be honest with you. I think I did get caught up in the hype and the the FOMO. And you see friends of yours making $500,000 by selling. That's that's real money. I mean, like I said, I'm 55 and I don't have a pension. So half a million dollars. It's hard to ignore them. I know there was all sorts of other consequences and stuff, and we're not here to get into that particularly. But at the end of the day, you make a decision, you go with it. But ultimately for me, it wasn't something that worked out particularly well. I I did sell some, but most of the money I made, I put back into other people who had less money than I did. Just a woman's work I was buying and she was uh, a Ukrainian refugee. She was living in a shelter in Greece and I bought some of her work and it fed her kid for a month. So right. at the end of the day, I, I don't feel bad about that. Uh, I still consider myself really fortunate. But of course, you wake up to the reality of these things and realize that the amount of time you're spending trying to promote yourself in these Web3, as they call it, environments is basically time you're not spending on your main career. And it gets to the point where there's not enough hours in the day. And it didn't take me terribly long, probably March or April of this year. So I think I I got into NFTs maybe late September, early October last year and was out by April. It's something I'll probably keep my eye on because the environment's changing. I know that the ETH merge has just happened this week uh, where the whole way the blockchain works is changing. Its whole energy efficiency is changing. There are definite things about smart contracts that are going to have reward repercussions and the metaverse is something that's coming. And I think there are going to be opportunities there uh, at some point in time. So I'm always going to keep an open mind, but I don't spend any time on Twitter anymore. I don't spend any time in spaces anymore. I do not sell any work through NFTs and I'm focusing hundred percent on the business of trying to use creativity to actually give a positive impact on people's lives. There are too many people I work with who are truly suffering and that means an awful lot more to me. So, uh, Yeah, pressure. The NFT things is one example of opportunities that appear um, potentially amazing. Countless other types of things like that. There's tons of others. Yeah. The whole YouTube thing. You look at some some of the people who make tons of money on YouTube or they appear to make tons of money on YouTube. A lot of my friends have big YouTube channels. Without my YouTube channel, we wouldn't have a business right now. That growth of the YouTube channel became the focus of a pool of people who empathized with the message I was trying to put out there, who have subsequently gone on to be part of the Expressive Photography Forum, the community. Uh, Many of the workshop people we get come from that community. Uh, Lots of people who buy our books come from that community. So you're building an audience of people who really resonate with what you're saying. But I mean, I think I make like 250 bucks a month on ads like that. The income I get from ads on YouTube is like nothing. But, you know, it's very easy when, yeah, it's life's hard and it doesn't come with a manual. Yeah, I mean, and it's to your point, it's easy for people who aren't faced with those pressures to kind of point fingers or make assumptions about things. I mean, it's like I always try as best as I can to stick to who I am and be authentic to my own kind of values and things like that. But I've also insulated myself from 
for being forced to make those kinds of decisions in that way, at least today. I mean, I'm sure someday I'll face those challenges. The outside, a lot of people see full-time photographers and it's like, oh my gosh, they have the best life and it's so amazing. And they get to visit these incredible locations and like life is amazing. And like, cause you know, social media, like you don't talk about how hard it was to put food on the table. You know what I mean? It's not like that's going to be super popular with your audience. So I'm curious, I would love for you to talk a little bit more about like the relationship and balance between creativity, authenticity, and the realities of just having to make ends meet? <laughs> That's a wonderful question. I'm a very positive person. Even when I was depressed, I was still a positive person. And I get a great amount of satisfaction of getting to the end of the day and looking back thinking, yeah, I've worked hard today. I've added value to the clients I'm interacting with. I'm adding value to the, the community I'm interacting with. The words I've written today, the mentoring I've done today, has added value to the people involved. The most important thing these days, I think, is to value your work, value your time, and understand things that you do have a real value. And if you don't believe that, then nobody else will believe that. And putting a price on your time. And I think the, the biggest problem, I guess, is, first of all, anyone who thinks they're coming into landscape photography to spend their entire time outside making photographs is delusional. That, that is right? just not the reality of it. If you're an amateur photographer <laughs> with a job who gets to go out at the weekend, you're making more photographs than I am. <laughs> End of story. Now, back when I was running 26, 27 weeks of workshops a year, yeah, I was in the field the whole time. Being at home, not making photographs was a luxury. That was like, oh, that's great. I can have a beer. So when you're, if you run 26 weeks of workshops a year and you're traveling around the world showing people how amazing the world is, then yeah, that's your life. But that has also become a very saturated marketplace. There are people who have very little experience of a place or photography running workshops, taking clients out, showing them the landscape and trying to tell them about photography. And that is obviously not something that's going to leave a positive experience for the recipient. So I think what happened when I went into an online business is that everything is very much immediate. You bring out an ebook, you promote the ebook, you get money. And then as soon as you stop promoting it, it stops. There's no, people don't just come to your website and buy stuff. People don't sign up for workshops just because they're on your website. So, so much of your work becomes self-promotion and most creative people hate self-promotion. Yeah. I mean, I know I do. That, that's just a <laughs> fact. I believe it or not, I absolutely hate self-promotion because that's not what I want to do in my life. Otherwise, I'd have gone into advertising. That's what I wanted <laughs> to do with my life. But, or marketing. So the whole business of being in business is incredibly time consuming. I mean, we have myself and my wife both working full time. She edits the videos. So I record the content. I write the articles. I do social media. I plan a lot of stuff. She edits all the videos. She does all our taxes, all our accounting, all our VAT, all of those types of things. A lot of logistics, a lot of dealing with accountants. And it's a full-time job. But if I can grab right. an hour and a half to go for a run, I'm going to do that. You know, because it's like, I'm out. I'm free. I'm not sitting in this chair going ass calluses. I feel guilty. I feel guilty picking up a guitar when I'm sat in my office because there's something I could be doing. I could be doing more right. social media. I could be doing more stuff. So I think the difficulty comes 
in finding a balance between work and play or work and recreation or work and creativity. The second part of your question was how can you retain creative authenticity and integrity in the face of pressure? The way I've overcome that is that I have made my business about the authenticity of creativity. So there's no dichotomy there. There's no conflict there because that is my business. If I'm running a workshop, I'm promoting the workshop as a retreat or as a creativity or an expressive workshop. It's not about going to this pointy mountain and I hope there's great light type of thing. It's not that type of workshop. It's not here's the checklist of all the amazing things you're going to do. It's about people discovering the landscape for themselves, building a relationship. There's more of a minor white aspect to the type of trips that I run and therefore people are there and they know they're there for that type of thing. So I don't need to advertise them with a phantasmagoria of what the landscape might look like or probably mm -hmm. won't look like. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> Spoiler alert. So, uh, yeah, the, the landscape doesn't know what your itinerary is. Right. Uh, I think I think going into the landscape with expectations when you're... The hardest thing of running a workshop is managing your participants' expectations. It's really hard. So the idea... But what I do know about running a workshop is I know what I can deliver during a workshop and I know right. that it will have value. So right. whether it's processing or finding stuff on terrible days or photographing in the rain or photographing in a gale or these things deliver aesthetics that are very different from mm -hmm. mainstream aesthetics. Yeah. But I think a healthy dose of positivity is a really great thing. Understanding when the release valve needs to be released, allowing yourself. I think when you're self-employed, there's always that you're always at work type of thing. And I would say that most of my peers who are full-time pro photographers, we've all at various times had to endure challenges and struggles. But I don't know any of my close friends who've sold out in terms of making popular photographs just to increase their business model. Uh, I'd say most of the people who I'm really friendly with, like Adam Gibbs or TJ, for example, th they make the photographs that they want to make. Rachel Talabart, Sarah Marino, uh, Jennifer Renwick, David Kingham, all of these types of people just have this incredible sense of authenticity and integrity. And I'd like to think that the photographs I make are very me and they're very honest in that regard. And the problem is that when you're, I mean, we have never in my professional photography career have I struggled for money. I've never been in a position where, oh my God, we can't put food on the table or we can't pay our utility bill or service the truck. Or We've never had that situation because I take it as a personal challenge that we will never be in that situation. But I know plenty of people who have been in that situation. And the problem is that you need to have a certain mindset when you go into business for yourself, uh, which is you need to have that I will win mentality or I will succeed mentality. Having said that, that's the theory. Yeah, you know, it's hard. I mean, it's, um, who knows what happens next week? Right. Like maybe YouTube stops giving ad money or something like that. And you're like, oh, go back that to wouldn't the drawing board. <laughs> you know what I mean? That no, wouldn't affect like... me at all. <laughs> well, even as we, even at, the, at this point in time, you look at the war and the economic right. situation just now with inflation. If people just don't have the money to buy photo books or ebooks or common workshops, that's our business kind of screwed. So if people don't have any disposable income to pay for our stuff, then we don't have an income. And under those circumstances, Anne would be working in the bar 
I'd be driving a delivery truck because that's what right. we would do to make a living. Yeah. So no, it's interesting. You know. I think uh, we had a pretty interesting conversation yesterday on the Discord channel about, I guess there's people out there that say that artists shouldn't monetize their work. I mean, I've never heard anyone say that to me directly, but I guess there's this idea out there that monetization of art artistry taints art. It makes it less about the art and more about people making money. And of course, I disagree with that. But I do think there is something to be said that you know, when there is money involved, it can influence what type of art somebody makes. I mean, that's just how it is. Yeah, and this is why, I, this is why I'm very reluctant to call myself an artist, because it, what you can monetize is uh, creativity there. No one right. ever said that that's illegal. <laughs> right, yeah, so, no, for sure. Uh, but I don't think we should... That's um, card with that one. Yeah, I just don't, I don't think we should be ashamed of making money for our effort or for our creative vision or for what we're creating. Um, but I think back to like what you had originally discussed early on here is if you focus more on that creative stuff and the expressive side of things, I think the money will follow. Like it might not be what you expect it to be, but it, I think it will come. The the end of the day, business is business. And if you're a very, very good business person, you will find a way to make money in whatever genre you go into, whether it's selling lobsters right. in a market or, or making clay pots and selling them at a market or making photographs or having thoughts that you can sell or writing books that people want to read. If, you're, if you have a way of communicating ideas or concept or dreams or aspirations or development, then people will buy that because most people are looking for that. Mm -hmm. I think what most of us have realized over the last few years is that the thing that we have that's of more value to people is our IP. You know, we have insights, we have thoughts, we have, we've discovered things about the creative process or articulating ourselves through our art that are transferable, that have value. I would say the most value I have I mean, I, of course, value my images and, and people do buy them and people do value the images themselves, but it's the way I connect humanity to aesthetics is the thing that I think has the most value to my clients. And people are happy to pay for that because they see it as self-development. Just before we started talking this afternoon, I had a mentoring session and at the end of it, the guy's saying, this has been amazing. I've learned so much just from yeah, talking good, about his it? photographs. Yeah. Well, yeah, it does feel good because I actually have people who support my work through the forum, through the Express Photography community who pay but don't participate in the community. And I feel guilty just for receiving their money without them getting anything for it. That is my moral compass. I feel bad about taking their money without actually delivering something for it. Yeah, so right. I'm constantly emailing them saying, come and join in and you know, post your work. And But that's... I think it's important to have a moral compass at the same time. But my advice to anybody thinking about trying to make a living as a professional photographer is you have to have something to offer that's more than being a good photographer. If just being able to make a pretty photograph is all you've got, then you're not alone. Right. There are hundreds of thousands of incredible photographers who are doctors and lorry drivers and dental hygienists. And there are people who have an income that can make beautiful work that's better than most professional photographers work. I know tons of people 
who make insanely high quality photographs and they work in research institutes in Vienna. It's, so if, if all you've got is I can make pretty good photographs, that is not enough. <laughs> you will I think, I think that's spot on. I mean, you have to have some kind of value proposition or a unique selling point or whatever, not to use yeah. buzzwords, but I mean, those exist because they're true. Like you have to do something that other people aren't. What doing. are you adding to humanity? Oh, that's I, good. I, that, that makes, it kind of makes it sound as if I'm like bigging myself up and like I'm changing the <laughs> right. world and stuff like that. Right. You're like Socrates but, or Aristotle. <laughs> well, whatever the Scottish equivalent of Aristotle is. But at the end of the day, people who I do work closely with, I have changed their life. That feels really satisfying. But yeah, it's a, it's a big old minefield out there and there are genuine pressures. Like I said, the situation I got myself into last year caused me quite a lot of anxiety and taking my wife through that, having her given up her job in Oslo to come over here to be part of expressive photography, felt a very strong responsibility to that. And to a certain extent where I'm now is even more passionately driven to do good work, to make a positive impact. And hopefully through the course of this, this conversation, that should be pretty evident, I would hope. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited to see where you take it, Alistair. I want to dedicate it as much time as we can to this topic. So I'm really excited to see how, how this turns out, but I really want to talk about a book that you're releasing called Out of Darkness because it's everything you're talking about. It's personal. It's about expressive. It's about, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a lot about people struggle with mental health issues and things of that nature and the relationship of expressive and creativity and things like that. So I want, I want to love to hear you talk about what the impetus was behind creating the book and what's the process been like creating it. Okay. Uh, I never felt the need to make a photography book. I, I think there's been a number of times in the last 15 years where I could have pulled together a selection of images that were kind of nice photographs uh, or competent photographs or even meaningful photographs, you know, particularly, I mean, I spent seven years in Tibet, for example, it was a body of work that I made there. So th there's been a number of opportunities where I've had thematic work that I could have pulled together to make books, but I never felt a very strong need to do so. Now, I touched earlier on about the difference between my time pre-2017 or pre-Gobi, as I call it, and post-Gobi. Pre-Gobi. Pre-Gobi, post-Gobi. And that, that is, a, without too much of a pun, it's a line in the sand that was crossed <laughs> and everything changed. My entire relationship, to go back to that word, with myself changed. I had historically suffered huge panic attacks, debilitating mm. panic attacks, dedicated for many years with like beta blockers and then other things like Prozac and uh, Xanax and things, trying to control this. Mm -hmm. And it's all you're doing is sticking a Band-Aid over the situation. It never made me feel better. It just controlled the symptoms. So anyway, post-Gobi, over a period of about 18 months, there was this very strong evolution where... I understood that my relationship with the aesthetics that I'd been making over that period of time was a timeline and that I changed the relationship between how I felt about darkness and I changed my relationship with how I felt about light. And what I realized was, is that I was making the aesthetics that represented the inside of my head. It, it was just basically a complete emotional outpouring and externalizing the aesthetics of panic and fear and anxiety and hope and joy 
using something as abstract as sand actually told the story of this relationship of out of darkness. So the theme kind of evolved. It wasn't like one of these light bulb moments. It was definitely an evolution. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to make a book. And then Anne, uh, Anne and I have both been big collectors of books. I think we reckon we've got about 300 photo books in the house. You've got a lot of photo books. And the idea of producing a book that was more than just a collection of photographs was very strong to me. I wanted to tell the story. So probably the middle of, well, during lockdown, I guess, of so 2021, 2021, I started coming up with the idea. I started to talk to the guy who does Bruce Percy's books, the guy who designs Bruce Percy's books, a guy called Darren. So I contacted Bruce I've got a few of his books and just said, listen, who do you use? So I started talking to Darren. We started banging together some design ideas. I gave him the concept of what I wanted to do. I told him it was going to be quite a wordy book, that I had a lot to say and that there was going to be quite a lot of text. And he started coming up with all these incredible graphic design ideas, which I knew he would. And as soon as he presented a mock-up of the cover of the book, it was just like, yes, we've got to make this book. It just looked so good. So we started the process in earnest, I asked William Neal and Joe Cornish to write four words for me. And both of them agreed and wrote incredible uh, four words for the book. I finished all my text in about February. Uh, all the images were chosen. So there's 132 images in the book that evolve from darkness right through to light. So it's kind of a kind of an aesthetic evolution that represents uh, change, I guess, growth. And then I wrote uh, two essays, one for the front of the book and one for the middle of the book that goes into this transitional phase. So we started to get, once the book was finished its design phase, uh, he uses a printer in Italy called Trento. So we started getting quotes from them, maybe late spring, something like that. And the biggest problem with books is that you've got no idea how many you're going to sell. I mean, it's just like, I have right. no idea. I'm like talking to Tom Heaton. Sell I might sell 15, I might sell 1,500, I have no idea. <laughs> you, I literally have no idea. And actually at this point in time, I still have no idea how many we're going to sell. But the economies of scale with a book are that the more you print, the cheaper it is. So right. if you print 325, the price per unit is insane. Uh, if you print right. 500, it's somewhat less insane, but still pretty insane. And if you print 1,000, it gets, starts getting pretty good. Mm -hmm. Not pretty good, but it's, it's acceptable. Right. The concept of a margin exists. Um, You're so, like, oh, yeah, once you hit that 1,000 number, you start to see like, okay, if I sell half of these, I'll be doing okay. <laughs> if I sell half of these, I'll break even. <laughs> right. You're like, yeah, that's not that's terrible. <laughs> Honestly, where I'm at right now is I'm not doing the book to make money. The idea of making money out of the book actually isn't an issue. Not trying to make money out of the book. Even if we, when we print a thousand, even if I sell 800 of them, we might make a little bit of money, but we're talking, I don't know, 20 grand. That So, I mean, 20, 20 grand, there's plenty of me, easier ways for me to make 20 grand than going right, through what I've gone through for some to, people to make this probably, book. Yeah, I was going to say, so for some people, that probably sounds like a lot, but then when you start to think about, I mean, having been involved in, two book projects now, like you start thinking about the amount of time and effort and energy that goes into creating that and promoting and selling it. 
20 grand is nothing. It's, I'm telling you, based on an hourly rate, it is like a third of minimum wage. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's it is so, it's not a good way to spend your time. But I really believe in the project. I really wanted to do the project. I really want that yeah. book in my hands. I want it on my shelf. I want to give a copy to my mother. I want to give copies to people who mean a lot to me. There are a right. number of people who've been instrumental in this who are going to get a free copy of the book. Tal is going to get a free copy of the book because I really want him to have the book. So I think anybody who, I remember listening to uh, something that Art Wolf said a few years ago, and he says, you don't make books for money. You make books because you have to make a book. And I think that's probably a really good way to go about it. For anyone who thinks they want to make a book, it's not about making money. Realistically, what's happened with us is that the price of printing has gone up by a third since April, May of this year. So the yep. costs have exponentially, and instead of passing that on to consumer, we've just said, okay, we're going to cut our margin. So that makes it harder to make money. Uh, so we started the pre-sale on the 1st of September, and that's going to run. Uh, we don't have a definite timeline for when the pre-sale is going to end. We're going to look at the numbers at the end of October. We're actually placing an order for a thousand book like now. I was speaking to them today. So we're going to go ahead and order a thousand books, but we haven't sold enough now to cover the cost of the printing. So that will be coming out of our business. We're going to invest in the project ourselves. We're also offering free shipping to the US, which is a quite a nice attractive thing for people in the US is to basically get the book sent over for free. So they buy the book and we send it. So yeah, that I mean, that's margin. like the number one complaint people have usually about buying photo books, especially if, if they're out, if it, the book is from the US and it's anyone else or vice versa, like it's in the UK and it's in, like people are like, oh, it's I've got to pay $80 just to ship it to me. Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. When <laughs> you're paying 100 and I was just going to say, I mean, we had a massive spreadsheet for the book for NLPA and it's like, you start thinking about how much it costs just to ship it. It's like, okay, I got to at least charge like 15, $20 or eat 15 to $20 off the top yeah. of the cost at least. Yeah. And so real realistically, what we've done is we've just cut our margins to the absolute bone because I'd rather send the book to people who want the book than them not buy it because they can't afford to ship it. So obviously there's countries around the world like Australia where we've just said, okay, it's going to cost me 55 pounds to ship the book, but I'll, I'll charge you 35. So we're subsidizing the shipping by 20 quid to, to a lot of countries around the world as well. So again, it was a project that was important to me that I really wanted to get out there. We've spared no expense on the quality of the book. There's three editions. There's a standard edition, which is the book only, which for people who order during the pre-sale will be signed. A deluxe edition, which comes with a silk lined uh, slipcase and a print, one of my prints, which will be signed in addition. And that comes in a nice envelope. And then there's the collector's edition, which is the book with a slipcase and a belly band that comes in a presentation clamshell case. Uh, so it comes in its own kind of magnetic flip open case. And there's a behind the scenes booklet that comes with that with more photos, a five image portfolio or a folio. So five of my favorite photographs in a folio that will only ever be available through the collector's edition, all signed, all certificated. And then I'm also composing music that will go oh, along wow. with a slideshow of all of the images. So there's 132 images. So that will take about 25 minutes. So there's a 25 minute music composition that is thematically composed by me to go along with the images so that's um, cool. that's really cool so that's is it guitar is it like what's and, the what 
what's that going to be like? Is it guitar, drums, I piano? I, I like... couldn't. Uh, it's going to. <laughs> well, it's there. There are stages have been done, but it's an evolution that represents the entire concept. Of course, I'm a guitar player, but I'm also a piano player or keyboard player. And yeah, uh, keyboard. Yeah. So there's all sorts of amazing things we can do now with synthesizers and virtual instruments. And so there's sure, cellos yeah. and uh, brass and horns and awesome. weird <laughs> stuff. But uh, so, yeah, that, but that's obviously just in the collector's edition. So that will come in a little out of darkness USB stick. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Nice. So, oh, so yeah, you've um, definitely, so yeah, seems like you've definitely thought it through. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's once you get your creativity flowing, it's just like, yeah, let's do everything. <laughs> just, right. so, it's, uh, but, you know, we charge for the collector's edition. You, know, you, you can't afford to do this and just give it away. So the collector's edition is uh, a reasonably expensive book. It's £599. Uh, the standard edition is £70 and the deluxe edition is £150. So there's a range of pricing in that. But if you're in the States, they're shipped for free. So... The other big advantage yeah. right now for people in the States is that the dollar is incredibly strong against the pound. So I think the book comes in at like under $85, which for the quality, and it's a big book, it's 160 pages. So it's a fairly large book by kind of book, photo book standards. So yeah, I mean, it's, if you're going to do it right, it's, I, there are times in the last couple of weeks where I just said never again like never again will I do a book but I know I'm lying I know I will because there's other things that I want to move on to and I thought for a while that the book might be closure I kind of figured oh this is going to be closure for a kind of difficult time in my life and some of the stuff I've been through but ironically it doesn't feel like closure it feels like an opening it feels like an opportunity it feels mm. like it doesn't feel like, oh, that's it finished. I can now forget about that and move on. It feels quite the opposite. It's really weird. I really expected it to feel like the full stop at the end of a very long chapter. Uh, but ironically, it doesn't. It's, uh, and I feel that is really uplifting for me as well. I feel that's really positive. So yeah, it will be I mean, interest. It'll be interesting to hear you talk about that after you have it in your hands. Because I know I talked to Simon Baxter about that. He was saying he wasn't expecting. I mean, it's almost like a low grade depression. Like, oh, what do I do now? Like, right. I had the same experience, and when I finished my goal of climbing the highest hundred mountains in Colorado, I was standing on the top of the mountain, and I was like, literally oh, crying because I was like, I just this is amazing, but also what the heck now? Like my life yeah. no longer has purpose or what? It's really a right. weird feeling. Yeah, I kind of went through a little bit of that in April. Uh, I did have this real sense of, oh my God, is that the, the most creative I'm ever going to be in my life? And the rest yeah. of it's just going to be, it's going to be like a Bon Jovi concert where they're playing living on a prayer <laughs> for the rest of their life. Is it going to be like that type of thing? But funnily enough, I found a new muse, uh, hmm a creative muse in May, uh, which I'm not talking about and not showing and nobody's seen the images yet, but I found a thing which I'm really excited about, which may evolve into something else. I think that that's important, finding something else to pour that energy into. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the beauty of not limiting yourself to one genre or one style or one outlet of creativity. I mean, I get a ton of pleasure from playing guitars and sometimes 
at the end of the day of like recording videos or writing books or doing mentoring sessions, just picking up a guitar and just letting rip or alternatively playing something very quiet and clean tone with reverb or delays, you know, something very atmospheric or with a volume pedal with sort of swells of atmosphere. Therapy of just or cranking everything up to 11 like spinal tap and just really riffing out aggressive heavy riff. That's a seven string guitar behind me that's great for just really heavy like leprous riffs or tesseract or that type of stuff. So creative outlets is such an important thing but I think what we said right at the beginning of this this conversation was that if you call yourself a landscape photographer and someone takes your camera away, are you no longer creative? No, of course you're, you're still creative. You haven't changed. The landscape inside your head hasn't changed and you will always find ways to express that. So yeah, I mean, I think that's the beauty of where I'm at now. Everything can be expressive. Everything can be an opportunity to be creative. Cooking, I've really got back into cooking. Just throwing stuff together and making a lovely meal for my wife is a really enjoyable thing to do. So mm -hmm. it's all about openness. It's all about expanding into the infinite space rather than blocking ourselves in and making everything smaller and more confined. So yeah, I'm in a really good space right now. And it's kind of, it comes in waves and sometimes you have bad days and good days, but most sure. of the time I'm in this really positive space now and feel good about what I'm trying to achieve and you know, physicality and health and all of these types of things. And they always say that, you know, take care of your cardiovascular system. At least they'll be worth something if you run out of money. Oh, that's morbid. Uh, <laughs> kind of dark. I, honestly, though, I think there, there is a relationship, at least for me, uh, like when I'm physically fit and I feel good, it definitely uh, kind of cascades over into all other parts of my life. So absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, one of the, I mean, just, I guess we're getting really close to kind of wrapping up, but, you know, I, I realize these days that we have this little ball of energy in our core and we get it from food and sleep and stuff like that, but also our own self-motivation. And if we use that energy to focus on all the negatives all the time, then it just drains and we just feel like we've got no energy. But if we focus on the positive, we get this net gain where we actually get the conversation that we've just had for the time that we've been talking is an energizing conversation. I feel better mm -hmm. about life and my own personal, uh, where I am right now after this conversation than I did at the beginning of the conversation. And that is a good thing. That's time well yeah. spent as far as I'm concerned. I feel as if this has been a net gain of energy. If I'd got to the end of this conversation and just thought, oh my God, where's the whiskey bottle? No, then that's less good for me and it's less. So I do believe that the more we focus on the positive and accepting that bad things happen, accepting that difficult, painful things happen, but there are things worth moving forward for and creativity and expression and articulation and being emotional and open is all good as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and I think it it requires just a shift in your mindset and also just practice, not something, it's not like you can just flip a switch, you know what I mean? I right. harp yeah, this and, uh, with to, my employees to... all the time because, you know, we face, in my work, we face really difficult situations all the time because we're helping people, we're helping people with intellectual disabilities try to live a fuller life and it's really difficult to do in today's society and there's a lot of barriers to making that happen and we get to solve really difficult, challenging situations constantly, but yeah. the more we focus on like what influence we do have over things and what power we do have to change things, the other stuff, like you're not going to fix or change any of that stuff. 
what can what, focus on what you can. A hundred percent. Yeah. Focus, focus on what you can do something about it. and the stuff that you can, you just have to shelve it really. So yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, to say that overcoming depression or anxiety or panic is just like, well, get a grip and you know, cheer right. up. Just get <laughs> over not, it, pal. The, yeah, that, that is not <laughs> the answer. But we do have the power to change our relationship with that. And yeah, you're right. Practice is a really good way to go about it or finding something to be passionate about that's more than the negativity that you feel the whole time. So yeah, I, I mean, life, like I said, is hard, but uh, maybe one day we'll crack it. Well, so how can our listeners uh, learn more about the book? Uh, the best place to go for the book is our expressive.photography website. And uh, yeah, that is the epicenter of all of our stuff, really. Yeah, so it's uh, it's expressive.photography. It's not a .com or a .co.uk. And yep, the book's on there. And then there's obviously my YouTube channel, Expressive Photography, and Insta, uh, Vero, Twitter, blah, blah, blah. I don't all spend a lot of time on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, the usual things. But yeah, the website and the YouTube channel are pretty much the two key places to find me. Cool. And then last question, Alistair, who would you recommend our listeners learn more about? Who are some people that have inspired you or that maybe we should take a closer look? Right. Uh, the first one is a Romanian photographer called Doran Bofan. And he is just the most inspiring young man I think I've ever met full of energy, full of passion. He has an incredible love for the outside world. And every time I meet him, he's just the most sincere person I've ever met in my life. So wonderful photographer, very thoughtful, very intimate, very quiet. He had a book out last year, which is a beautiful little book as well, but I think it's probably sold out. And then the second person I want to mention is a woman called Astrid Preitz from Austria. Uh, she's not a full-time professional photographer. She's a self-proclaimed amateur, I would say. She got featured in the NLPA last year. Uh, so she's in the book uh, this year. And she's someone I've been working with for a couple of years and her transformation uh, through the power of using creativity for personal development has been incredibly profound. And I find her imagery and the way she writes about her imagery to be some of the most profound I've read and seen from anybody, regardless of their job title. And I think that's just a wonderful inspiration to everybody that you, the most of my inspiration doesn't necessarily come from the world's most famous landscape photographers. We can get inspiration from anyone who's making work with authenticity and integrity and using aesthetics and creativity and emotional expression to help themselves to grow and to be to become more open and better people. So Astrid is someone I would absolutely love you to have on the podcast. She will be mortified at me suggesting this. I really enjoy her work. We, we've yeah. spoken a few times on social media and I think yeah. having that knowledge of kind of the transformation in the backstory, I think obviously that helps probably elevate your opinion of the work. And I think that's really important to kind of reveal and talk through, which I think is one of the funnest things about this podcast is we get to do that. So. Right. Absolutely. I love her photography. So, uh, yeah, uh, she's actually away this week. She's, she disappears into the mountains every year to go on like a retreat on her own with no oh, electricity cool. and running water. So she's away up in the mountains and the Alps on her own in a cabin, just thinking and creating. So it's a really cool love thing. To it. Do. Yeah. Well, awesome, Alistair. This has been super fun. I'm so glad we could make, make this happen and have you come back on the show and 
kind of talk about where you've been and where you're going and I just I'm really excited for your book and I know there's been a lot Thank of you. buzz about it over on the Discord channel so I think you're going to have an easy time getting that pre those pre-orders done that when this podcast comes out it'll be after the pre-orders but I think that'll probably actually help you a bit so Cool. Yeah. I mean, anybody who buys a copy, whether it's pre-sale or after, is appreciated. And I hope they'll have the book. Awesome. Well, thanks again, man. I appreciate it. It's been an honor and a real pleasure. Well, thank you to Alistair for joining me on the show this week for such a wonderful conversation. I am so glad we could make it happen, and I'm genuinely excited for your book release. Let's all go to expressive.photography and get ourselves a copy of the book ASAP. If you enjoyed our episode this week, you can join Alistair and I over on Patreon for a bonus conversation all about the importance of relationships in photography. Speaking of supporting of other photographers, I am absolutely stunned at the huge outpour of support we have received over the past few months. We've added some new Patreon supporters and that feels awesome. I am so elated that you all feel compelled to support the show financially through Patreon. It really does help keep the lights on, seriously. With that being said, I wanna thank the following people who have stepped up to support us. Thanks to Benjamin Grant, Sean Crawford, Kevin Monahan, Rob Darby, Candy Watson, Michael Young, Jim Davis, Jeff Maltzman, Stephanie Hogue, Philip Castaneri, Stephen Barrelly, Brent Clark, and Julian Parrott. I can't thank each of you enough for helping to keep this project alive. Next week, you can all look forward to our awesome episode with German landscape photographer Radomir Jakubowski, which I thought was a ton of fun. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in collaborating with us and listening. See you next week.